0: Hello.
1: Hello, Tony. You all right?
0: I'm good. Thank he you. Was, he was
1: coming up uh, with uh, various things, saying that I couldn't uh, uh, allow access to various things. I mean, I've given you access before, so I was getting uh, uh, perplexed by it. Uh, by <laughs> yes, yeah. one of my uh, my oh. early discussion ran over, so my apologies. But uh, ready and waiting here. <laughs> I thought I'd been stood up, Peter. It's absolutely no
0: problem. <laughs> yeah. No problem
1: never i was just timing it right so it was eleven eleven <laughs> when i was joining in so it was what i like to think so
0: thank you ever so much for joining me you're peter collins museum director at the staffordshire regiment
1: museum can you hear me okay peter that's great yeah, so, yeah. i think there's a little bit of
0: interference there so we're talking a little bit today about trenches and, and specifically during the First World War. We know the First World War was synonymous with trench warfare. And I think that's where it, it, it kind of reached its zenith in terms of how it was deployed, etc. Could you describe a little bit about what conditions were like in the trenches, how widely they were used by both the, the British side, the French side and the German side, please?
1: Originally, at the start of the First World War, um, we had a few uh, initial battles, a little bit of cavalry. Uh, battles went uh, across the uh, uh, lands, but very quickly, from September October uh, 1914, the uh, troops started to embed themselves down on both sides. So the allies, obviously being uh, uh, the British and the French, predominantly at the start of the war, and the uh, Central Powers uh, being uh, uh, Austria, uh, Hungary, and Germany, bedding themselves in. So we we set up these trenches, um, which were um, um, in theory, um, uh, they were temporary, uh, as all trenches are intended to be. So trenches, obviously, have been around for a long time in warfare. You know, um, If you think of the people outside the gates of Troy, they probably embedded themselves into uh, into trenches to escape from being thrown spears at. And that's because it, it's logical to encase ourselves in the ground. Um, but the, the original intention was these were always temporary structures. So that sort of formed quite a bit of what they... Um, were like in terms of their conditions. So um, you had a, originally, obviously, there's forward trenches, which is the trench that probably people uh, are quite um, uh, familiar with, the ones that sort of, they're going over the top, you know, uh, uh, hopefully back in time for tea and medals, if they're thinking of Adder and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and then behind those, though, are things that like communication trenches and supply trenches. So there's a whole network, and there was a whole network across France And Germany, where they uh, um, they were developed with supplies coming up, troops going up and down. So troops were there usually probably four or five days before at the front line. So in terms of that forward trench, uh, and then it'd be back down the line. Um, So they weren't there for a very long period of time. But if you imagine the noise, and of course, what we're not doing is smells, the uh, uh, conditions in those trenches you're referring to. About the they were. Soldiers were covered in lice, uh, generally. They were, um, obviously we know about mud, um, because the first of all, it was quite known with mud, but also, of course, it did dry up. It didn't rain all the time. So once it's caked in, you, were, uh, you also had the problem of dust around uh, a lot. Um, soldiers were very difficult to keep themselves clean in, in that uh, um, role. And of course, eating food, I think that would be quite a challenge. And of course, food would bring in other animals, so things like rats, were quite prevalent in trenches as well. So some people had their own cats to uh, protect from the rats. Very, uh, so to speak. Probably there's a there's a whole poem in there. I think of uh, other things that were brought in. Um, but also what you have is of course unpleasant conditions. So sometimes uh, people have been lost, within in no man's land they would uh, you'd find uh, bodies within trenches. Sleep conditions were very poor. So the officers would have had a dugout. They might have had a uh, um, bunk beds those sort of things so away almost from the the actual front trench but for a lot of soldiers they slept where they stood uh, or they would sleep in um, what they call funk holes which are little holes cut into the side of trenches and things Um, so they were uh, condition-wise they became so initially as a temporary structures probably everyone thought they were going to be there for very long and they're very useful but of course it became very very well developed as the war goes on of course those as the trench systems become the entrenched part of that war on the Western Front, then we get quite used to it. The trenches, of course, we, we often associate just with the Western Front, but of course, they're used extensively, and the same conditions apply on the Eastern Front and in places like Italy, Russia, uh, Hungary, and those are places where so troops embedded themselves in was quite readily in that sense.
0: I think that one of the reasons you had this stalemate in on the Western Front was because previous to beginning of the 20th century food was always a problem wasn't it keeping the armies at the front line fed but you had the tinned meats bully beef and all that which meant that essentially you could keep armies there for a very long period of time because of these new inventions that happened because of the industrialization you had barbed wire you had uh, mass munitions and you had tin food that would sustain an army indefinitely in those positions
1: that's right that supply lines were extensive to support that army yeah. um, as they went over through the topping and you're right the, the trench warfare side did help that and in terms of that industrialization of war as well as terms of planning you know, it's not a it's not a guerrilla war as you might have seen if any listeners are aware in fact say the peninsula war in the Napoleonic wars or or later if you think of things like the campaign in burma in the second war which guerrilla warfare you know were sort of short skirmish but this was uh total industrial war and you know yeah. those troops could be fed they could be supported arms of course uh, could be supplied up the lines particularly the western front would stretch right back to the uh, the coast so those feeding and also for when um when troops cut your finger they they sort of patch you up and say off you go mate you're back to the front if you had had more serious injury they would assess you and then be able to get you back down the lines and on a boat back to england if it was a to the Allies within a very short time period, you know, very uh, similar to what we would have now. You if, if we think of people in Afghanistan, and that's in there, but the difference—they're not on a boat; they're, they're phoned out very quickly. So.
0: How did they break the stalemate? What what inventions, what techniques did they develop to break the stalemate of trench warfare, specifically on the Western Front? So
1: you, specifically on the Western Front, we were so quite um, from about 1915 when they start realising that this trench warfare is starting to get embedded, we start looking for what they would classify as some sort of war-winning weapons, as they would like to refer to them, so what things can break that stalemate. Um, so you have obviously the use of um, uh, big guns and specific types of um, shells that can actually break through things like barbed wire, and those are not very effectively, I'll, I'll point out, um, and the use of big artillery to uh, before they would do um, um, their operations they would have something called a uh, they would do a barrage um, which is a whole volley of uh, um, uh, artillery fire Either, both sides would do this sort of technique and then we developed something in the Allies called a creeping barrage as well so they would go forward and in front of them shells would be filling so that again would take out those trenches and they would have a quick run across no man's land yeah. take the trenches and and off they go again not very effective and of course sometimes people actually end up uh, using friendly fire so actually blowing up their own troops which isn't very effective um but you in the early days seems to the um uh, one of the first ideas they have is particularly on the german side is the use of gas as one of their uh when we're chemical warfare as we refer to it now um not very effective Really, but the use of uh, uh, gas was quite scary, and of course, people probably be aware from the Second World War. Obviously, gas was considered a, a, um, a real uh, 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 trauma you know, that was going to happen. Thankfully, it didn't in that sense. But gas wasn't, was a, uh, had a slight drawback in that it was based on the effectiveness was based on prevailing wind. So you deployed your gas, which was lovely, and the wind was blowing in the direction you wanted to get. Unfortunately, wind being the uh, uh temperamental uh, uh, beast that it is, would then um, turn uh, and change direction, so of course that gas could then blow back over your own troops and enemies, uh, which were quite uh, uh, ineffective. The, um, also, if we get towards the um, 1917, which is one of the biggest war-wearing weapons, would have been what was originally referred to as landships, but the tank, so the British developed tanks within Britain, so the first use of those was the Battle of Cambry in 1917, and that was quite a uh, uh, an effective weapon. Um, although they did some of get stuck, broke down, and got a bit of traumatizing. Um, certainly the first effect of the Battle of Cambry really shocked the German troops in how they would um, uh, be used. Uh, and uh, gradually, as the war developed, they actually became an effective tool um, of the uh, 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 of the Allied offensive. So Germany never really had any tanks of uh, much effect, but Germany also had. Um, Referred to as zeppelins, so uh, airships. So they actually took that war to a bit familiar from people who are aware of the Second World War to the home front. Yeah. So they actually, um, which we I, I would find a bit strange now to almost be finding they used to call it the Zeppelin menace, which I find a bit strange to be scared of a, uh, an airship, you know, pottering along at you know, quite a short mile an it doesn't really seem that menacing. That HG Wells in um but the, um, um, the use of them uh, on. Um, a bombing uh on mainland britain did help bring the war um to the home front and help scare people yeah. as well which is what they were affecting so lose that morale on the home front um intriguingly actually the, the uh, towards the end of the war um, the germans actually developed a uh, an aircraft called a, uh, a company called pole which is a big triplane aircraft it's a, an aircraft with three wings basically one on top of each other like a biplane but with an extra wing on top um to actually uh, drop a bomb on New York, um, which they thought would um, so scare the uh, Americans that they would fall out of the war effort and uh, Germany might win, because obviously the Americans had came in towards the end of the uh, First World War. Thankfully, they didn't get to make it. And intriguingly, if you think of again, think of sort of how people are using these weapons and things, the Atlantic actually hadn't been crossed by aircraft at this point. So, uh, so you know, so all Cocker Brown's first fight you know, across the Atlantic non-stop was not till nineteen nineteen. So, uh, so it was quite a uh, a challenge, in you know, almost that they were trying to cross the Atlantic using this war-winning weapon. So there was lots of ideas to break that stalemate, uh, and obviously there was the use of surging troops, which we're familiar with, you know, from again from uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq in recent years about the surge of troops. Um, but largely, that was quite uh, ineffective. Tactics also changed throughout the course of the war, so people learn how to uh, negotiate these um, texts. Of the popular images of the uh, again using a bit of a uh, black adorism, but the uh, the generals behind the lines, you know, and Colonel Melchis and all that sort of thing. But and there were probably some of the ineffective uh, generals in the first war, but a lot of generals uh, and planners changed their mindsets and changed their ideas of how to win this one. For instance, um, obviously uh, at the Staffordshire Regiment Museum, uh, um, our staff, uh, regiment, uh, Staffordshire Regiment um, helped take the Line in September uh, 1918, which is a fortified um, trench line um, through effective planning. So they, uh, they again using air power, so obviously planes are quite quickly used to deploy, so originally scouting and then change into those bombing tactics as well as the airships. Um, so they start um, using those barrages and that thing, and the tactics really changed. So by the time of that, the, the uh, uh, 1918 we really are learning how to use these new weapons effectively.
0: You do see the First World War as a watershed moment in terms of what we consider modern-day warfare of, of incorporating tanks and uh, planes. Air superiority was really just emerging at that point. I mean, you had the Royal Air Corps... which was the forerunner of the RAF. And that was just about coming into being, you know, during the First World War. And um, you had the generals who were probably used to cavalry charges, understanding Mm. and learning that this new warfare would need something else. And like you say, an evolution of their tactics to kind of combat the the different uh, obstacles like trenches, the barbed wire, um, mustard gas, they had to think, in you know, there to develop their ideas of how to to beat the. They
1: trenches. did, and a lot of those, although some of those techniques had been around before, so use of trenches, use of barbed wire, for instance, the Boer War, yeah. um, use things like submarines, the U-boat menace, for yeah. instance, in in the First War, submarines have been around in the American Civil War in the eighteen sixties, but they hadn't been done to the scale yeah. that we see in the First War. So, as you said, that is the uh, the war moment, and we've never, you know. The, although the Second World War was uh, much bigger in terms of the amount of uh, bombing and use of soldiers and techniques and, of course, loss of life, unfortunately, than the First War. The First War really ached out, as you rightly said, in that watershed moment. Things were never the same. And we learned as well, of course, the, you know, the tactics that Hitler uh, used quite effectively in the 1930s in, in taking Poland, Czechoslovakia, the blitz League tactics. Yeah. where you're know, fulfilling all those ideas that sort of almost coming out of the First World War. You know, uh, Fuller, uh, uh, who had been uh, wrote with definitive uh, books on the uh, First World War, he was a British chap. He actually advocated the tactics that became Brit's rig as a response to his understanding of the First World War.
0: It's, it's this idea of total war, isn't it? That the war isn't just fought mm. on the battlefield. It's also the enemy's capacity to uh, manufacture munitions. And also, like you said, about the the zeppelin menace, it's about uh, the psychological effects of warfare on the population, their appetite there for the conflict. It was just as important.
1: You're right, actually, there's a good phrase that um, uh, uh, Roosevelt uses in the uh, Second World War to apply to what America is doing before they joined, actually, the Second World War. Uh, But he calls America the arsenal of democracy. Uh, And it is, you have to produce more ammunition, more weapons and more, idea, uh, more equipment than and soldiers than the opposition. That is, is a war of attrition in that sense, all alone in historiography. Sometimes people refer to the Paleonic Wars as, a, uh, as one of our first total wars because the war happened. You know, there was, we we're fighting battles in the Americas, yeah. in the, India, the, uh, in Europe. It's not on the scale to what we see and everything is geared you know, to, that, um, to that war. Effort it, and it yeah you know, it so sort of climax is really with the Second World War, yeah, you know, where the British economy was totally geared to war, and everything was produced for that uh, war. And and we see that, but even down in that uh, in the First World War, for instance, things started to get restricted. So rationing came in because things because a lot of our foodstuffs, just like in the Second World War, came from abroad from our then empire and those sort of things. So again, you could you could take out a country. By knocking off their food supply and that sort of thing, so winning that war on the home front which is important as winning the war on that battlefront so Germany for instance uh, Hitler used the phrase uh, later called they were stabbed in the back by their politicians um but Germany because what happens in the 11th the 11th 1918 is a ceasefire it's an armistice it's not the defeat of Germany they give up because they're losing that war on that home front
0: it's a good point isn't it because the way the Germans saw it they they were still on French soil when they when the armistice was signed it, it wasn't they was. they they I suppose didn't think that they were losing the war they thought they like did not said, know because I know mm. that outside of it the the British were blockading the supplies of food to Germany so you had the Bolshevik revolution going on in 1917 and I know very much the German um, aristocracy the the, the German a higher class were, were very much aware of um, what could happen in Germany, what happened in Russia, happening in Germany. So I think there was a lot going on outside of just the, what was happening on the battlefield on the Western Front and, and that kind it, of play. That's and,
1: quite right. Yeah, that's quite right to refer to it. And I, I think it's um, uh, there was a real fear, which is the uh, of that Bolshevik Revolution, obviously taking out Germany in terms of losing that war. And, and there's a big fear in in the Allied powers as well um, with that which happened in, in Germany, but. Although what well, we didn't, when we think of uh, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, there is obviously the uh, uh, Battle of Trafalgar, which gave us naval superiority, uh, the British and uh, the Christian Empire. And so, although the naval side wasn't used extensively, apart from sort of maybe the Battle of Jutland in the First World War, which was a bit inconclusive, really, um, the blockades that we did of uh, Germany lost that war for them on that end front. Your people in Germany were starving. Although yeah. things were hard in Britain, people were not starving, there wasn't literally enough food. This talk of uh, cannibalism and, and those sort of things in Germany uh, that towards the end of the First World War, I think, so uh, uh, they were really uh, um, um, up against it uh, in, in terms of that. Uh, and that war is on all fronts. It's not, on that, as you wrote, so not on the battlefield. It's across that whole front. And you have to win the war at home as well as winning the, uh, the war on the battlefield.
0: Yeah. Peter, it's been great talking to you. I, I know you've only touched on a very deep, complicated subject, but I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating hearing about how the the evolution of the Industrial Age culminated, like you say, in the trench warfare. So people mm-hmm. have been learning these skills in, let's like, say, the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, mechanizing uh, weapons, etc. And like you say, they get they reach their zenith in terms of their potency, and that's partly what led to the, the the trench warfare that we we read about, and like you say, Blackadder uh, makes uh, documents in the, in the Blackadder series. It is a fascinating subject. Um, thank you ever so much for talking to me. Um, it's been fascinating. And you do actually have a museum, don't you, uh, with a a mock-up of a trench system at the- it,
1: We do, yes. We, we like... have a, um, as well as a new displays in our cases of that. Uh, in the museum of that trench. We have a, a whole trench system, not as extensive as they were on the, uh, on the front, I should uh, mention, um, but um, yeah, we've got one here that people can access and go inside. You've got noises and sounds to get a little bit of a sense of what it's like. I will point out that it is cleaner and less muddy uh, and, uh, uh, and no rats. And, things like that. and also, if, if people are um, interested, by the way, if they go on the um, uh, Imperial War Museum's website, for instance, uh, the whole of the Western Front, certainly, in terms of uh, um, trenches, were actually photographed from the air, and they're all available on their uh, uh, websites, uh, which are quite fascinating to see, You could see the extent of how um, how these uh, uh, trenches went on, and of course continue, yeah, they're still there in some yeah. parts in the, uh, people still digging up ordnance, in uh, which is uh, what we call uh, uh, shells and, uh, yeah. uh, and bullets in um, Western Germany, and in the... On the uh, Italian Austrian border. They're still digging up bombs and things from the First World War. So uh, we certainly threw a lot at them. So.
0: But it's absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Peter.
1: It's a pleasure, Tony. And see you soon.
0: Take care.